Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Coming up on this week's show, play Game Boy Classics on your Switch. A cheap CD-ROM drive for your Amiga. And we chat about controversial games with Kirk Hewitt. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every week with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, they proudly present their biggest, most ambitious book yet, I'm Too Young to Die, The Ultimate Guide to First-Person Shooters, 1992 to 2002, covering the early experimental years of the genre that now rules the world, covering more than 180 games. You can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our friends at PCBY, now they offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service and they have low cost, fast turnaround quality boards and offer services like 3D printing and injection molding. And PCBY are massive supporters of the retro community. So if you're working on a project right now, get an instant quote for it at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 365, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And it is our favourite time of the week, just before the weekend, when we get to completely geek out about all things retro, get all nostalgic and of course bring you up to speed on all the happenings in the world of retro from over the last seven days. And of course, in the second half of the podcast, that is where we welcome on an industry veteran to give us their story and talk about the classics that they worked on. And uh, today... We've got a real treat. Um, I can't believe that we finally got Kirk Ewing on the I, show. I've, now, I've uh, got to have words with Joe here, you see, because <laughs> yeah. I'm usually the guy that gets the guests, and Joe's just been killing it recently. So I feel that my crown is kind of slipping at the moment. Yeah, I'm just, uh, just, uh, you know, just doing my thing, dropping a few emails, contacting a few people. You know what it is? I started using LinkedIn, like you know, for myself, for my like my regular, you know, weekday job, nine till five. And I just started like adding loads of people on it and just dropping in messages. And most of the time they're just like, yeah, yeah, drop me a, an email. And then they just come on. And I'm like, what's Ravi been messing about? <laughs> Pull your finger out, boy. <laughs> yeah, I've got to get on it. I've got to get on it. Because this week's guest is just absolutely mind blowing. You know, um, I, one of my favorite guests that we've had on and one of my favorite discussions that we've had on the entire show. Yeah. Now, Kirk has been um, really, you know, he's involved in the video game industry for decades now. I mean, a lot of people in the UK will remember him from his appearances on Games Master. Uh, yes. He was particularly in the last couple of series. I mean, he, he was kind of reviewing games in the early series, and then he became a bit more of a staple towards the end, including that um, episode where um, Dave Perry had the uh, infamous Mario 64 incident. And I think, you know, we've had Dave Perry on the podcast before. We've had Dominic Diamond on. So we've got their side of the story, but... Also, Kirk was on stage as well, wasn't he? So yeah, we yeah, we, 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 we get Kirk's kind of side of it, but also he went on and he did he did quite a chaotic show later on with uh, Dominic Diamond, which uh, was called Kirk's Night of Plenty. 
Uh, Dom and Kirk's Night of Plenty. Yeah, Dom and Kirk's Night of Plenty, which was just absolutely mad if you've not seen that. But within games development, you know, he was a director of games and he worked with Viz Entertainment. And man, Viz, they did like some wicked titles. So they worked with Rockstar and they did State Mm. of Emergency, which was a a fantastic like anarchistic kind of title where you're going around, you know, smashing up shops and property and it's all kind of set in the future. And he also started working, you know, we I think he had the rights to the GTA movie at one point that he was kind yeah. of going around and uh, uh, banding about. But then later on, he went into some some pretty controversial titles as well. So we cover some uh, controversial subjects in this, uh, particularly JFK Reloaded, which was a, a game about the assassination of JFK. Yeah, and that got obviously, particularly in America, um, you know, some very bad press from uh, lots of high-profile politicians. And we kind of talk a bit about you know why he decided to make those games, but actually he's got a really good angle on it, and also why he thinks you know they're actually quite educational games as well. Um, and it's a really interesting side of it because I think you know often we talk to people that make controversial games that really just do it to shock, but actually there's a lot more to it than just that, isn't there? With Kirk, yeah, yeah, there was like a lot of a lot of looking back at history. And, uh, of course, being on the edge of Rockstar, you know, they, they've always had a bit of controversy with, like, the original GTA series and stuff like yeah. that. So it all kind of plays into that, and it's a, a really interesting conversation. And even today, he's working on, uh, you know, a competitor to the um, the Meta Quest, a new augmented reality headset that we'll talk a bit about as well. So really interesting guy. Kirk Ewing, he's going to be our special guest on the show in just over half an hour from now. Now, it has been a busy week in terms of retro gaming, and um, I do apologise, guys, if I do sound uh, slightly distracted because um, on my desk in front of me, yeah, I must admit, I have been playing it. <laughs> Game Boy Games. Now on the Switch and Game Boy Advance. Yeah, man. So this was announced. There was the Nintendo Direct uh, last week or maybe maybe the week before now, about a week and a half ago. We, you know, we're, we're slow to the mark on this one. But, um, Joe was hungover in Budapest. <laughs> I don't know, I don't Still a little bit hungover. I'm not going to lie. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of big announcements. Uh, Metroid Prime on the Switch uh, was a big one. But the one what we've been excited about is the release of the Game Boy and Game Boy Advance titles um, as part of the... Um, the you know the library they've got there on their Nintendo Online. It's part of the premium library. So you know when you pay the extra and you get the N sixty four and the Mega Drive slash Genesis games, you now also yeah. get the Game Boy and Game Boy Game Boy and Game Boy Advance games on there. And they've they've released already out to play uh, about eight games per system with another once again about another eight on the way four per system as well. Um, but it's a really nice mixed library. Of course, Tetris is there on the Game Boy one. Um, but anything else you've been playing, Dan, or anything else you can spot there, some standout titles? Well, I'm looking through the uh, the Game Boy Advance list as well, and you've got um, Super Mario Brothers 3 mm-hmm. um, is on here as well. You've got um, WarioWare Inks on there too. Uh, Mario Kart Super Circuit, yeah. which is a really good version, actually. Um, big fun of that. Um, you've got Zelda on there as well, yep. uh, the Minish Cap. Although it seems like I'm looking through my, my library here. Some of them seem to be... Um, doubled up oh so you got the european version yeah. and the japanese version of a lot yeah of them as yeah well. yeah so you, you get both versions of them quite often they'll do yeah. that nintendo but yeah. yeah no some some really 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 standout games so the game boy you've got alone in the dark the new nightmare uh game and watch gallery three which was the you know like the game and watch games like in, in one cartridge um because you can do game boy color as well can't yeah. it? So you the dark ones are color yeah 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 Gar- gargoyle's quest kirby's dreamland 
The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening DX Deluxe. So that was the Game Boy Color version of Link's Awakening. Uh, Metroid 2, uh, Return of Samus. Super Mario Land 2, Six Golden Coins, which uh, my friend's been messaging me about that he's been playing through. Um, I've not had a chance to get it yet. Of course, Tetris, Wario Land 3. Um, and then, like you say, you've got Legend of Zelda Minish Cap, Mario Luigi Super, Super Saga, Mario Kart Super Circuit, loads of really awesome games. But it's just a shame that it's taken, like, what, five, six years yeah, for them I to do this? We, we, we mentioned ages ago that it should be on yeah. there, didn't we? And it made complete sense <laughs> to get Game Boy games on a handheld. It's pretty obvious, yeah, having, as you said, handheld, having their kind of older legacy handheld titles on there. Um, you know, obviously it was all virtual console before, but they're, they're, they're now charging individually for each one, so they're probably going to make a bit more money. Um, I, I'm wondering... Well, it's, it's a subscription it's you a pay, subscription, actually. So it's yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. so it's yeah. like Game Pass or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So okay. yeah, yeah, Nintendo Online, it's got two tiers. Um, I forget how much it is, but the, foot, the bottom tier gets you Nintendo and Super Nintendo games. You get about 20 on each, don't you, Dan? Yeah, and then, I'm not and you so Mega Drive games uh, too. Modern console worlds, so I don't know about <laughs> these subscription things, but I was wondering, is that also... Like, are they going to do that whole handheld legacy? Because if they do that, then they're going to have to have the Virtual Boy in there. Um, oh. Have they got the DS? Um, <laughs> no. Would that work on the Switch, the Virtual Boy? Because I mean, it's quite a unique screen it's got on there. I'm not sure what they look like. You've got to hold the Switch like right a, against your face. And get an adapter, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but um, the DS, have they got any no, DS titles on no. there? No, so as far as, so as far as they've got so far, uh, for the uninitiated, Ravi, is, like I say, I've got the Nintendo... They've got the Super Nintendo. They've got the N64, which was only last year, I think, maybe the year before. Sega Mega Drive. And now they've introduced Game Boy and Game Boy Advance. So that would mean the Game Boy Advance is actually the, the most modern system they've oh, got on okay. there. So I guess the, the next would be the GameCube and the DS. So, you know, I don't, whether they do that or not, I've, there's, a, there's a lot of people crying out for uh, the GameCube. Not so much the Virtual Boy, but I think it would be funny if they did that. <laughs> yeah, I think um, DS might be hard with the two screens. Or maybe yeah, they could do yeah. something with, you know, having the um, Switch screen and then having it on the television. Yeah. Just, or if you or if you have the Switch vertically, it might work. Oh, oh yeah. That's oh, good yeah, point. maybe. Yeah, maybe. yeah. I still yeah. think the Switch is going to be a complete failure and it's just... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was Ravi's prediction when the Switch launched, like, what, five years <laughs> yeah. ago? But, yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, these these online retro catalogues that they keep introducing, and, I mean, I think, you know, when Nintendo Switch Online launched, it was only about 20 quid for a year. Mm. And I've looked now, because, I mean, like all of these services... I sign up on direct debit, it just gets renewed, and you're not really sure what it's kind of crept up to. At the moment, a 12-month plan in the UK, uh, £31.49 for 12 months. You, you know it's the which, creep, isn't it, right? Like, um, yeah. you, you look at Game Pass, I remember there was like a deal where it was like £1 on the PC or something. But um, everyone signed up. Yeah, <laughs> it's like now even I notice my Netflix membership has started getting more expensive, mm-hmm. and then they're talking about like, oh, well, we may have a few adverts in there at one tier or something, and it's like slowly the kind of creep starts happening once they get you on one of these online services um you know it's uh yeah like what but in terms of nintendo switch i mean you know 31 quid for 12 months i think is definitely it's a lot cheaper than game pass or or psn uh, yeah Plus yeah or like what i'd there. like to see is a maybe a, a physical adapter that would somehow go onto the switch that you could put the older titles in but yeah uh, that probably wouldn't happen you're dreaming there avi (laughs) (laughs) but it does just prove to me and i mean i love the fact that nintendo are doing this and yeah it does feel long overdue 
you know, that the GameCube just makes complete sense to have on a handheld. And whether they'll get around to doing, like, you know, DS games and that on there at some point wouldn't surprise me if they find a way. But it really does just cement the fact that the Switch just feels like the the ultimate kind of retro console now, doesn't it? It's, it's for me, like, when I was younger and the DS came out and everything, I saw it as the evolution of the Game Boy. It was part of the Game Boy. I was like, I used to call it the Game Boy DS. Like, but obviously it, it, it isn't the Game Boy DS. It was the DS. It was, it was a new, it was, it wasn't part of that line, but in, in a way in my head, even though the Switch is, you know, it's Nintendo's main console, they combined the two, you know, I still kind of see it as like, it's the Game Boy, <laughs> you know, like the Game Boy is its yeah. granddad. I don't see it as like the Nintendo is its granddad. Do you know what I mean? So I, I think it hundred percent makes sense to get them on there. And, you know, it's good to see that they're already announcing games that are going to come come out later this year as well on them. Yeah, and every time I open, like, one of the emulators on there, you know, if I haven't played it for a couple of weeks, there's always a bunch of new titles mm. that they're putting in there, like, all the time. So um, in terms of value, I think, you know, it's really good and a really simple way to play them. And that's the thing. It's like, you know, if you're emulating these titles on your PC or something or Raspberry Pi, something like that, you're not sure they're going to run very well and there might be emulation glitches. You know, Nintendo always do it really well. Yeah, my, my one question is, though, you know, maybe in, in 10 or 20 years when they're onto the next console, when does this service then get shut off? Well, there know, is we a, we there lose is all that. the titles, you know. So still always a bit of a fan of physicality. That's when the Switch emulation comes to... Uh, <laughs> I'm, em- I'm emulating the Switch... <laughs> On my new Nintendo console so I can play Game Boy Advance. <laughs> yeah, that'll be it. <laughs> so uh, if you have got a Nintendo Online subscription, those uh, Game Boy and Game Boy Advance games are available now. Now, we also love seeing fan remakes as well, and I must admit this one does make me a little bit nervous because we often talk about how Nintendo are not all that friendly towards uh, fan-related projects, but it turns out Sega have been a little bit like that over the last couple of months, so it remains to be seen kind of where this is going to go. Uh, but this is really cool. This is a Sonic 3D Blast remake by a fan. Yeah, so uh, this fan's remaking uh, Sonic Blast, whatever you want to call it, Sonic Blast, Sonic 3D, Flickers Island, Sonic 3D, I just call it, you know, the the last one for the Mega Drive, the one that came out on Mega Drive and Sega Saturn. But um, this user is remaking it. They're called White Feather, and they're quite known kind of in like the Sonic kind of modern, commun- modern community, uh, known as Sega Sonic Saturn on Twitter as well. Um, and they've posted a couple of videos about this. They've been working on this for about a year now, but they've just done some recent updates on it. And this is essentially a fully 3D remake of Sonic 3D Blast. I'm going to keep calling it 3D Blast, but Sonic 3D, I always know, knew it as. Um, and it looks really nice. It, I can't help but think it looks like what we should have got for the Sega Saturn. Oh, like yeah, you know, in the can of worms there. Yeah, yeah, a massive can of worms there. Um, but yeah, completely built from the ground up. But they've they've recreated it really well. well I'm not too sure if you guys are familiar with Sonic 3D. I um, was thought it felt like Marble Madness. Um, yeah, <laughs> with yeah. Sonic like stuck in the middle of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, it's like that funny isometric view, and you've got to save the flickies, the little birds. Um, I think they've what we've we've seen so far of this. You know, they've captured that really well. Um, and even like the running animation that he's got, he's got quite a funny running animation in Sonic 3D, and they've actually captured that quite well um, in this free in this remake. It's kind 3D of like skate, of skating along, sliding along. I, I remember yeah. um, getting some of the angles on the jumps was uh, yeah. really hard on that. So I'm, I'm glad to see they've got a camera that you can actually change positions yeah. on. Um, yeah, yeah, and then you know they've obviously you know modernised it as well. You can you know play it in um in sixteen by nine ratio, aspect ratio, and 
they've redone uh, some of the mixing of the music as well, using some of the Saturn mixers, which is really cool. Um, but I just think it's got a really nice Sega Saturn kind of maybe early Dreamcast look to it. As Dan says, you know, maybe he was talking about it's not a very good thing for the design. Well, what wasn't the, the Saturn um, where everyone was kind of desperate for the Sonic game and then they brought Sonic Jam out, which yes. was just to kind of like remake and and look at some photos and run around yeah, that island. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Sonic R, the racer as well, was on there, wasn't it? Yeah. So. And wasn't there a version of 3D Blast as well that kind of there came was. out a while ago that was a weird, totally different like beta? Um, yeah, that rings a bell. I think we covered that when there was, you know, one of those big dumps about a year ago. I think we did cover the, the beta version of Sonic 3D. Yeah, it was like a show version or something yeah, that came yeah. out beforehand. Yeah, so this yeah. is based on the actual released version yeah this is based on the actual release this isn't like a based on a demo that never came out or anything like that or something that we're seeing it you know at e3 or anything like that in the in the 90s this is uh, this is completely from the ground up and you know it looks really nice um apparently there's going to be original voice work in it they've redesigned done some really nice um 3d rendered images but like cut scenes at the start of the game and stuff like that because of the the 3d blast that we did get did have these kind of like rendered images. And so they've incorporated some, you know, homemade ones of that as well, which, you know, looked like they're straight out of the game. I kind of had to like double take it and be like, is that, is that from the actual Mega Drive game? But they're not, you know, they're, they're new ones that they've inserted and, you know, the music sounds really gorgeous on it as well. Um, so we'll just see where it goes with uh, how funny Sega have been in the last couple of months. Because that game was developed by Traveller's Tales, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. And and that's the thing, because, I mean, I didn't play that game until quite a bit later, um, but I do have vivid memories of it, it coming out, but also people, you know, being a fan of it on the Mega Drive, thinking it was an impressive kind of demo, if you like, on the Mega Drive, but being bitterly disappointed when it came out on the Saturn that it wasn't a proper 3D Sonic game. Mm. So I think it's always kind of got that kind of reputation around it. Yeah. You know, the people are like, oh, don't, we don't want this. We want actual proper Sonic 3D. So I think in terms of reception at the time I, I do vividly remember quite a bit of disappointment around it but um yeah i haven't played it enough to, to I, say I remember the game, feeling of playing that when i was a kid that i couldn't mm. get enough speed up and whenever yeah. i got enough speed i hit something that would then slow me down and i always felt this didn't have the the kind of you know pace that sonic usually had in games and that frustrated yeah. me a bit yeah yeah it, it was kind of going back to what you said a few minutes ago as well, is very slippery in it as well mm. and the perspectives and stuff. And, you know, as you say, Dan, it was made by Traveller's Tale and famously it was a, it was built off, you know, the Sonic teams just kind of gave them a concept and said, this is what we want the game to be like. And they kind of had to make it off the back of the concept of it while they were, Sonic Team Sonic were meant to be making like the mainline Sega Saturn release and, you know, we don't want to open that kind of worms and everything. <laughs> everything. <laughs> that never uh, happened, obviously. And, you yeah. know, we only ended up with Sonic 3D and the weird Sonic Jam and Sonic R and stuff like that until eventually we got Sonic Adventure. And then there's the weird Sonic Arcade game as well, Sonic the Fighters, that not many people seem to talk yeah. about. Um, the less said about that, the better, probably. Um, but, yeah, we'll see where this goes. In terms of a time capsule, I think, you know, when, when this came out, like, 96, didn't it, originally? Mm. It's, it's an interesting look back at kind of what was going on mm. in gaming back then. I mean, everything had to be 3D, didn't it, yeah. you know, around that time? So it's uh, nice to see some uh, fan attention and uh, that game getting some love. So if you want to get hold of that, it is coming out for the PC. And uh, there is a, a work-in-progress alpha version now, and I'll uh, put a link to that article in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, one of the uh, most legendary adventure games of all time 
this is always nice to see, is getting a physical re-release for the PC and the NES. And this is the legendary Maniac Mansion. Yeah, this is a an absolutely groundbreaking title. You know, um, the Scum Engine was actually kind of developed uh, with this because... Uh, Oh, what does scum stand for again? Uh, I think it was script creation utility for Maniac Mansion. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Oh, I think it was this, guys. <laughs> <laughs> just just off his head straight away. Now, I've got a feeling that was a question in one of the Christmas quizzes that's uh, embedded in my mind. <laughs> well, we, we, we had David Fox on the podcast, and, you know, he, yeah. he talked about this title and how big it was. And to be honest, it's one of the titles that I've not visited myself, and uh, mm. I'd love to go back and actually look and play at it. But I know it was groundbreaking, especially with like the humour and the kind of B-movie setting that they had on it. Yeah, and I mean, for me, I, I kind of got into the, the LucasArts games with Monkey Island 1 and Loom around that time. And obviously, Maniac Mansion predated those by a couple of years. Yeah. I think it was, what, 87, I've got a feeling, came out. Um, I have played it, you know, kind of retrospectively in the last decade or so. On the Commodore 64 was actually the version that I, I've played the most. And I think just having that running on an 8-bit system with that kind of point-and-click interface is always quite impressive. But yeah, this is really cool. So this is at Limited Run Games, who, of course, they do a lot of this um, thing, don't they? Mm. You know, where they actually do real collector's items, don't they, and present yeah. them beautifully and, uh, you know, the real premium products as well. And there's going to be three different options that is actually available from uh, from today to pre-order. Oh, okay. I thought it, I thought it was just the two. But yeah, there's going to be the uh, the Nintendo option. Uh, which obviously comes with the NES version of the game. Yeah, the standard and, standard and premium editions on the NES. Oh, okay. And then you've got the collector's one for the PC as well, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like you say, you get the standard standard version, which comes with the physical physical cartridge, uh, you know, that you can play on NES. And I think that's going to be $60, whereas the premium version is going to be $100, $99.99, uh, which has, you know, a bunch of other stuff. Um, you know, there's going to be like, um, there's a map in there and like a, a pin, like enamel, enamel pin. It, it's limited run, you know, you get the big presentation of it. Yeah. Um, but it's the PC version that I think looks really cool. You know, I love the big box PC games, um, which obviously you just don't really get anymore. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't actually come on floppy disks or anything like that. It, uh. it does come on a USB stick, but it's a cool USB stick. I've not played Maniac Mansion, but it's like a little blue mummy figurine, which I assume is part of the game. Like a pharaoh kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, a little pharaoh kind of thing. Uh, which does look really cool. Um, now, I believe the PC version is going to be a port of the, I think it is the C64 version, correct me if I'm wrong. It's, it's, okay. Yeah, it's interesting because they had different developers for the different titles. So um, uh, LucasArts, um, LucasArts Films did the uh, NES version, but also Jalico as well did. did okay. um, I think it was the Japanese version as well. So there's like a, a, a mix of developers when they're releasing it on the console, but then obviously PC, it was... Uh, it was, you know, straight away um, Lucasfilm. I can never say that. Lucasfilm Games. Yeah, and then straight away it was, you know, Lucasfilm Games. And obviously, I mean, in terms of adventure games, one of the most famous adventure games ever released. And um, I haven't played it for a few years. I mean, it would be interesting to kind of see. I'm not sure whether it doesn't look like there's kind of any any updated graphics or anything in this. It is literally just the original just game, isn't it? the original games, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what Limited Run do, though. I mean, they're not about doing the yeah. remasters. Yeah. And, and, like and, you know, the price, um, well, yeah, it's interesting. The premium one is about $100. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then 
you've got about 60 for the NAS yeah. and uh, 74 for the PC. So it's, it's kind of expensive, but you're getting a lot of things with it as well. And that's always and, the and case. And like the title says, limited, it's, it's right? li- yeah, it yeah. is limited run, isn't it? They're not making millions yeah, of Yeah, they, yeah. Tend, they tend to limit to it. It doesn't actually say on this uh, article here, but they tend to limit it between 1,000 and 3,000 limited run do. Mm. And then you always get like, it will say on the back of the box what number you've got and you'll get a little card in there to say what number you've got as well, which is, you know, it's always really nice. I've got a couple of limited run games myself and I've not actually brought myself to open them. I've kept them sealed, <laughs> uh, which I know just sounds really silly because I've bought them. I bet no one does. I bet everybody just keeps them on a shelf. Yeah, probably more than <laughs> likely. I've got uh, the Castlevania collection and the uh, Zombies Ate My Neighbours collections and they're just sealed on my shelf, yeah. you know, just there, ready for me to be buried with when, <laughs> you know, when, when I die. <laughs> So if you're a fan of the classic point-and-click adventure games, a really nice presentation pack for collectors. Uh, pre-orders available from uh, today when the show comes out, February 17th, up until uh, April the 2nd. So I'll put a link to that. And uh, everything else we talk about, you find it all in your podcast app or the show notes at theretrohour.com. And while we're talking about theretrohour.com, that is a good little place to head along to if you'd like to offer a little bit of support to this podcast. Because, uh, just to mention, we don't talk about it that often. We have a patron, and we do quite a lot for our patrons as well, because uh, we do uh, an extra podcast called The Retro Hour After Hours. So this is a bonus podcast, comes out every single month, and I think we just recorded the uh, 31st episode of that a couple of weeks ago. And if you join us on Patreon as a gold member or above, you will unlock the entire back catalogue. You can listen to 31 episodes, um, some of which are like two hours long. And uh, the latest one is a really good one, because um, so many times of us doing this podcast over the years, I hear people going... What, what's that Joe Fox guy about? Well, he's not even an Amiga fan. Is he not trying to make... You need to get him into the Amiga. And we finally did it, didn't we? We got you on an Amiga to play some games. I'm not going to lie, guys. I think people are more interested in to hear what your your guys' favourite Amiga games are. Because you two are just like Amiga through and through. Like, I give me my opinion on it. I tell you what games I, I, I bleed Amiga. Um, but you guys bleed Amiga. You literally do. Well, you cut Ravi, there's boing balls all the way through. Well, well looking at the kind of themes of the recent one that we've had we got joe on like a system he doesn't know so i think we should yep. all do a system that we don't know i was i was chatting with joe earlier and i was saying wouldn't it be cool if like i did something like you know played the turbo graphics and then like you know dan, play the switch ravi dan did some like casio <laughs> yeah. stuff or something yeah the switch would be a new system for me <laughs> um you know look at a, a total alien system i think yeah. that'll make a really really fun episode that's the thing about the after hours. I mean, anything goes, doesn't it? We do different themes every single month and, uh, you know, hopefully you enjoy it. We do get some nice feedback on that. So if you want to unlock all those episodes, that's available now. Uh, next weekend, obviously February is a short month, so it will be the uh, the patrons hangout coming up on uh, Sunday 26th. This is where we get a load of us together, as many patrons as want to come on. We hang out for a couple of hours on a Sunday night, just geek out as well. And uh, you get the normal episode early when I can get it edited in time. You get extra patrons news, sometimes 10, 15 minutes extra on every episode as well. So, uh, a really good time to join us on Patreon and all the details to sign up right now are at theretrohour.com. So we're going to talk to this week's special guest, Kirk Ewing, in just a moment, talking about classic controversial games, a few Games Master memories as well. And speaking of being slightly controversial, the Intellivision Amico. Now, have you guys watched DJ Slope's video on this. This is like I, a I don't, yeah, I don't think I've had the time to, to I was going to say, but <laughs> also four talking, hours and I'll watch it. <laughs> talking of Earthworm Jim as well, uh, Kirk, who we interviewed, does talk about uh, Earthworm Jim 3D, which he, yeah, which he, does he did some yeah. stuff on. So uh, interesting well to hear the story about the uh, <laughs> the new Earthworm Jim title. 
Well, this was something that we talked about on um, the show years ago when the original Intellivision Amico announcement happened. And if you want to get the full story of that, like I said, Slopes has done an incredible video. And I've been driving about an hour and a half to work each way this week and last week. So I've been about three hours in the car. Um, it's stupid o'clock in the morning. So literally, I, I put YouTube on my Bluetooth on, on my car, just been listening to it on the speakers. Great video he's done going really in-depth in into the whole Intellivision Amico story. Way too long for us to obviously recap everything here. But really, I mean, the reason we're talking about Earthworm Jim 4 is this was a game that was originally announced as an exclusive for the Intellivision Amico console. I, I would say it was probably the biggest title for that whole console. Yeah. They were going to run with that as their as their kind of killer app, weren't they? Yeah, there was even videos as well, wasn't there? So it looked like, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the Intellivision Amico and is it Vaporware and, you know, it, a lot of doubts over whether it's ever going to materialise. But there was a teaser trailer um, that came out about three years ago now that I remember us getting pretty excited about when, you know, it first dropped because um, I'm looking now for it on YouTube. It turns out it's been deleted. It, the graphics look nice in it from memory, but it was just Jim kind of crash landing on a beach and then running around, wasn't it? Yeah. And that was really the thing that got people excited because obviously Earthworm Jim legendary franchise and this is going to be a new game only on this console and, and so that got a lot of interest you've got the original artist and creator of Earthworm Jim uh, yep. Doug Tenepo, um yep. to uh, actually you know be part of it and get involved in that project so it did seem like you know something interesting was going to happen and he was putting like concept art on Instagram as well and stuff but it does look like it's kind of hit the dirt and kind of collapsed after after the collapse of the um uh, foot spa uh, uh, Mika. <laughs> yeah, it does look a bit like a foot spa. Um, but yeah, this comes from uh, a website called Out of Context Earthworm Jim. It's actually a Twitter uh, feed as well. And there's been a, a Discord conversation apparently, and um, I think this comes from either someone who's close to it. Um, it doesn't actually say what the source is here in this article. But basically it says there was a, a Discord conversation where it says Earthworm Jim 4 was quietly dusted under the carpet, um, hoping nobody would notice. And they reckon that it could even be you know, speculation around the fact that maybe in television didn't have the rights to Earthworm Jim because it's owned by Interplay as you, well. You know, if, if something's been in development and like, I think if anything could have broken out of the kind of Amico and come out of it at the end, it would have been this. You know, it's a project where they could have gone, right, we're just going to continue going and then we're going to launch it or port it onto a different platform. And then yeah. it could have just gone ahead as Earthworm Jim 4 and they, like, dropped the Amico. But it seems like it was so kind of integrated with the stuff that happened there and probably, I guess, the funding around it would have been a, a based on that. And, and, yeah, that's all just quite completely gone. But to me, it seems like one of those titles that could just branch out, you know. Yeah, totally. And I mean, that's what I expected to happen. So I thought, yeah, obviously the Amico doesn't look like it's ever going to get released, but it would make sense that, you know, they would just port this game to the Switch or something if they had rights to it. So I think it would be a big seller if they put it out on those platforms. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of nostalgia about the series. A lot of people love it. Out of everything that's happened with the Amico and everything, it would have been nice to have still seen this ported to like mm. Xbox or Switch or whatever. You know, I think it would have been perfect for the Switch. 
You know, it's interesting, though, because after watching or listening to Slope's video, don't watch YouTube and drive, <laughs> only listen, um, I do kind of want an Intellivision Amico. <laughs> you're you're, you're a sucker like, for, like, failed <laughs> systems. <laughs> Put it next to your VCS, eh? Yeah. I know, it's really weird, I, I was it? listening to listen- Retro Asylum the other day, and a yeah. great podcast, and they said, Dan Wood is one of the only people that we yeah, know with a VCS. And I think there are some Amicos out there because, I mean, they've been seen at shows and stuff as well. And I was wondering this because I think there was actually a video I saw some guy kind of unboxing one. So there are definitely like, you know, models of them out there that I think are working. And I thought, you know, if you've got one of those in a box and if it does never materialise, they're going to be worth a fair bit of it, aren't they? As collectors, I put an Amico inside a VCS case and then you've got the rarest console in the world. (laughs) I bet there'll be like fan recreations of the Amico in the future in, oh, in retro a bit. So, uh, yeah, it looks like Earthworm Jim at the moment. Um, looks like it may never materialise, but I don't think many people had their uh, their breaths held anyway after the news over the last couple of months. Yeah, I hope, um, I, I don't know how it worked with the crowdfunding and stuff, but I hope people haven't like lost money on the Amico. Oh, I, um, I think they may have. Like the public <laughs> and the backers, yeah. yeah if, think- if that's happened, then that's really bad. Yeah, I know that Slope said he had like a, a hundred pounds kind of invested in it that he doesn't expect to see again. Um, but if you haven't watched Slope's video, actually, like I said, it's four hours. It's the most in-depth video you'll ever see about the Intellivision Amico. Might have to um, and, and he's very open out. as well. He, he was a bit of a supporter about it originally, you know, and he, like I said, he backed it. So there's a bit of egg on his face as well, and he's quite open about all that too. And I think, you know, the best video I've ever seen from Slope. So I'll, uh, I'll definitely stick that in the show notes if you want to hear more about that. Now, just one quick thing to mention before we chat to uh, this week's special guest, um, Kirk Ewing, coming up in a second. This is something I've been playing around with over the last couple of weeks. And being, you know, gamers of a certain age, I don't know about you, Ravi, in particular, does the word CD-ROM still sound futuristic and a bit exciting to you? CD-ROM. <laughs> yeah, uh, totally. <laughs> I, I remember that. Um, I think it's Tomorrow's World where they got it on and they were, like, scratching it with nails and they were like, this will never never get damaged this is a cd-rom you know was that where they ate baked beans off it or something <laughs> something like that, that yeah, yeah. I, I still remember the introduction of it um but this is a new way of having a a cd-rom on your amiga which is pretty cool actually because with the cd-rom i remember when it came out um you know people would try and come up with these solutions and uh i think scuzzy squirrel was one way you'd have it stuck in the side another one was cutting your amiga to pieces having a CD-ROM like rammed inside that you'd then press a button and it would like fire out of the wedge case. Um, Should I tell you how I did mine back in the day? I'm not sure whether you had, um, I had an Amiga 1200 and I wanted a CD-ROM drive on there. So it probably got to around 96, 97. And that was when CD-ROM drives, you know, IDE CD-ROM drives were becoming yeah. affordable. I think I bought like a quad speed or an eight speed for like, you know, 60, 70 quid. So I had a um, an IDE cable. A buffered, a buffered, buffered interface. IDE interface with a That's the cable thing. coming <laughs> off, yeah. Yeah, and one cable going to my hard disk, one kind of snaking out the side of my Amiga 1200 <laughs> without any screws in the case so it could come out the back. And then I had it lying, just the naked CD-ROM drive on my table and then I spliced into the floppy drive power cable, um, soldered on some extra wires so I could run a Molex cable to the back of the CD-ROM drive, and I had this whole mess. Uh, yeah, these mess kind of Frankenstein setups. You see, that's yeah. why people put them in the towers or have the big boxes because you could hide all the mess inside it. But yeah, um, I do remember those days, and you think, oh, I'm so futuristic. But now there's a, a quite neat solution that you've been using, um, Dad. 
Yeah, well, this is a new driver um, written by uh, Aiden Holmes that is uploaded to um, the Amiga software repository called Aminet. And this is basically a driver that allows you to use um, very cheap PCMCIA CD-ROM drives. And the ones in particular are the uh, the Sony Vio drives. Okay. And there's a couple of different ones that are supported. And I got one off eBay for £15. And it is so easy. I mean, you know, the price is going to go up now. This has been introduced, but yeah, I can imagine there's a lot around, you know. I posted on um, on one of the Amiga community groups, and a lot of people are like, oh, I've just bought one now, and I'm going to try and get a YouTube video made about it if I can get off my bum and make a new video. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. There's going to be more interest in this now. This drive is available, but it works really well. And it is basically, it looks a bit like a. A CD Walkman from the early two thousands, cool. really small and light, you know, compared to those massive CD ROM drives that we had in the in the nineties. And plugs into the side of my Amiga twelve hundred. You download this driver. I've also got because um, I want to run CD thirty two games on it as well. Even though I've got like two CD thirty twos. And that Joe asked me the other day when I was, I was showing a few pictures. He's like, Sanger, what was a CD thirty two just an Amiga twelve hundred with a CD ROM drive?" Kind Which, of, yeah, but it, it with, was, a, it was with a fancy much. chip called the Akiko that no one used. But um, what, yeah. what, one thing that happened with CD-ROM, and uh, that was always the audio would be played through the CD-ROM player and yeah. kind of not through the Amiga, so it'd be disconnected. So what what is the solution? How are you mixing the audio then between your Amiga and the CD-ROM? Because you had to physically mix it back in the day. I do remember some people with cables that you'd have a resistor on and there'd be all all yeah. all sorts of kind of weird mixes and the volume would dip and all of this kind of stuff yeah you're right because when you're playing generally cd32 games you get the the amiga sound effects come out of the amigas audio ports and then there's usually cd music that's streaming off the cd as yeah. well and if you have like you know cd32 that combines them all itself you know just out of one port so you don't need to mess around with it but this I actually got a little um mini mixer that's a, a tiny little thing about the size of uh you know half the size of a tv remote control with uh which is a little audio mixer nice solution and it's got these little um yeah so, so basically i ran a a mini jack to phono cable into that for the cd audio two phono a phono cable out of my mega 1200 into that as well and then the output of it into my monitor so you can manually control the volume of the cd and the sound effects as well um so actually it works really well and i think actually it's quite nice having manual control over it because some games the cd audio kind of drowns out the sound that, effects that was a bit. always the problem i remember when yeah. i had mine like hacked together and i'd be playing it and the sound effects like guns and explosions would be huge and the music in the background i wanted to hear yeah. it so i'd have to absolutely blast it up and it would just like yeah all the levels would be totally wrecked so that's quite a nice solution yeah, so uh, hopefully, like I said, I'm hopefully going to do a YouTube video on it at some point. I think my last video was in September. It's been a while, but um, yeah, it's working really well. I've got it on my desk near me now. So a really cheap and tidy way of attaching a, a CD-ROM drive to uh, users old, even like, you know, the old CDPD and Aminet collections and stuff like that and the old magazine cover CDs, you know. There's a load of old CD-ROMs to explore. Or just or um, just now, that's what I call music. That's what yeah, you want to play, CDs playing through your monitor is quite nice. Um, so, yeah, it's available now on Aminet for free, and that works with the Amiga 600 and the 1200, so I'll put that in our show notes too. Right, then we're going to be talking to Kirk Ewing, controversial games, in just a moment. Before we do that, we're going to talk about languages. And we're talking about languages that we like to learn to improve our lives, because this is our sponsor, our good friends at Babbel. You guys got some holiday booked in this year? You heading away anywhere? I booked Tenerife yesterday for May. Oh, yeah. Senor, gracias. 
I, I'm doing an Amiga event in the UK, so I'm going to uh, be staying at home this year. But I'm sure you'll have people from all different countries coming over to the true, Amiga event true, in the UK. Yes. And that's the thing about us Brits when we go abroad. I mean, generally, we're not really that well known for being versed in other languages. We are a bit lazy, if I'm honest, when we go abroad. You know, you just kind of expect everyone else to speak English. But I don't know about you guys. I always try and make an effort to learn a few phrases and that kind of thing. But often they get quite embarrassed. It's usually like alcohol, toilet, uh, food. On holiday. But I mean, I don't know if you guys are the same. Sometimes if you go to like Spain or somewhere and you see like, you know, tourists from France or Germany, you know, they're, they're often speaking the, the native languages and you think it would be nice if we made a bit more of an effort in this country. And we were talking about it last week. The fact that I think our school system, particularly when we were at school, it was just never very successful, was it? You learned just, you know, words rather than phrases. And that's the good thing about Babbel. Now, Babbel is something you can use on your phone or your computer. It basically makes language learning quick and it focuses on natural conversation. And the way it works is it gives you 15-minute lessons. So, you know, you're not there. You remember being at school. I think I did like French lessons at school for like three hours on a Monday afternoon, which is like no wonder things didn't sink in back then. But the way these are designed is to be efficient and effective and to help you learn a new language. And the lessons are crafted by uh, over 150 language experts. It's real people. And you'll learn how to have real-world conversations, stuff that you will use when you go on holiday, not those meaningless phrases that you learnt at school. And they're also voiced by native speakers as well, using modern conversation methods as well. So you're not going to sound stuffy or, you know, like it's out of a 1970s textbook. And their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective across multiple studies. And you can pick from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German. And what I think is really cool is Babbel has got speech recognition technology. So don't about you guys, you know, when, when you're learning languages at school and stuff, you didn't quite know if you're pronouncing things properly and how your accent sounds. No, yeah, there's a lot of like regional dialects with stuff. Yeah. I, f- I think I remember one. The only one that we knew well was the song, which was like, Jean Duarte, Jean Duarte. And that's like <laughs> stuck in my head. Well, maybe you could sing that to Babel, Ravi, and it'll rate your accent and your pronunciation. So they do have speech recognition that can help you improve your pronunciation. And there are so many ways to learn as well. I mean, they've got lessons, there's podcasts, games, videos. You can even join in live classes with a language teacher as well. So you can start your new language learning journey with our friends at Babbel. And uh, because we love their service, we've actually got you a great offer where you can get three months free with a purchase of a three-month subscription by using our promo code RETRO. So sign up right now, head to this website, babbel.com slash podcast23, and use the promo code RETRO for three months free. B A. B-B-E-L dot com slash podcast 23. Use our promo code retro and a big thanks to our friends at Babbel, language learning that works. Right then, next, it's time to talk to this week's special guest and a really fun episode this week with Kirk Ewing. He's next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. And uh, what a guest we've got this week. Someone who's worked in the industry for uh, several decades now and is still doing very exciting things going up against uh, the big tech companies in America. So we'll talk more about that a bit later on as well. Let's welcome on someone who's a games director, a presenter, a designer as well. You know him from uh, TV shows like Games Master, and um, that used to be on back in the day as well. Let's welcome on our guest this week, Kirk Ewing. How are you doing, Kirk? Hey, guys. Thanks very much for having me on. Very nice to meet you both. 
Yeah, you too. Appreciate you uh, taking the time at the the end of your long work day to uh, reminisce a bit with us today. That's okay. I've had a nap today, so I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> little siesta. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, before we get into you know some of the the history of you know what you've worked on in the games industry and what you're doing today, I mean, kind of winding it all the way back to to day one. I mean, do you remember what kind of initially got you into gaming and that? I mean, where, where did your journey kind of start? I I know clearly where my journey started. I used to uh, I used to go. My grandpa was really quite sick when I was a, a kid, and I used to go with my mum to when she would look after him, and she would jump me at the at the arcade. So I'd get left at the arcade down at the front in Largs, and I saw my first ever uh, arcade games machine, uh, Space Invaders, and then along came Gorf. Uh, I don't know if you remember Gorf, the first sort of talking arcade machine that I ever got. Yeah, back to. and and that was it for me. Basically, I was like, I like this. This is kind of the thing for me. And, and then I didn't do anything about that. Obviously, you think games are just, you know, not real, really a job. I didn't do anything about that for years. But I started, uh, uh, I think, again with the Amiga. And when I started really using the Amiga, I was completely hooked. It was the days of pirating uh, discs, if you might remember. So you got... X-Copy Pro. <laughs> so you got a chance to play absolutely everything that got made. Uh, and at that point, I was pretty much, this is the, this is the job for me from this now on. Well, was that your first machine that you got at home then, the Amiga? Uh, no, I had a ZX81 and I had an Atari, which I, I borrowed from a mate and never gave back. And then really the Amiga was the one after that, yeah. So that was my first proper home machine. It was the one I fell in love with. It was completely broken. We used to have to have it outside the case and you have to do that thing where you have to flex the machine just to get it in the right spot. And then you can load the disc quickly and hope it worked. Yeah, I was, I was wondering, did you then create any games yourself or, or design anything? Well, I'm not a programmer, so I was I was kind of always about the kind of creative ideas, and yeah, I mean, I was designing ideas, but more importantly, I was I was staying with a guy called Jamie, and Jamie was a, a really early sort of 3D artist, and I was more kind of working with him, helping build some animations at the start and selling them to people. So my first real sort of experience of working in computers was was helping him out before I actually got into the design. And were you doing stuff on the Amiga, like, you know, messing around in deluxe paint and that kind of thing? 100%, or, uh, 100%, yeah. and the earlier sort of 3D software as well. I mean, and it was where I saw things like Lemmings, right? You know, and, and again, mm. to understand then that there was a Scottish company that was making this massive title and, and everybody was playing it, that really kind of inspired me to think, well, it is possible to go out there and do something else. I think that's one thing about the Amiga as well. It really kind of um, fostered that creative field, didn't it? Because I mean, it's stuff like, I remember like Amos on there and shoot them up construction kit. And, you know, I had friends that had Mega Drives and that, but literally you put a cartridge and you played a game. On the Amiga, it felt like, you know, kind of anyone could do it, even though I know that it was a lot more involved in making a game like Lemmings, but it did kind of give you the tools to do it at home, didn't it? No, 100%. And it, and it really, you know, that kind of experimentation that happened with the Amiga and the fact that it was, it was still a slightly illegitimate bedroom thing I think was really important mm. in fostering the stuff that I went on to do so it did feel that we were you know punks if you like on the Amiga and about to do something unpleasant with it well <laughs> w- what was that like DMA designs connections and uh this as well or VIS there w- was it kind of made up of old stuff from there the the way that I met DMA design and Dave Jones was actually through uh making a documentary about piracy so as I'd mentioned previously I was I was not at the forefront, but I was involved in the uh, disc swapping scene, as we like to call it in Glasgow. And uh, uh, and I decided that I, was, I would make a documentary film about it. Uh, and I approached Scottish television as it was at the time and uh, got a commission to make a, a short form documentary. 
And I actually went and got Dominic Diamond as the host for that documentary. And the two of us pitched up at DMA and interviewed Dave Jones, interviewed the hackers, interviewed a whole bunch of people for the documentary. So not only did I get my introduction to Dave and the games industry proper, but also it was the first time that I'd met Dominic in one package. Right. What's that documentary called then? Is it still out there to watch anywhere? It's, that sounds really interesting. It's out there on YouTube somewhere. It's called Fair Game. And right. it's one of Dominic's early serious television forays. Because <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like, um, you know, you mentioned being kind of in the cracking and, you know, the, well, the disc swapping scene as it was then. I mean, I, I was talking on, on our podcast a couple of weeks ago that I had a, an uncle who had a friend at work who used to dial all the the pirate bulletin boards, you know, like Skid Row and yeah, Fairlight yeah. and all those. No, and the, the names are flooding back. Yeah. I mean, where did you kind of get your games from then? Then do you remember? Where did I get my games from? Yeah. Uh, well, the Barras was the, the hotspot of, uh, of game swap at the time. And the Barras is this sort of notorious uh, market in the uh, east end of Glasgow. With lots of sort of little stalls all hidden behind these different walls and different buildings. Uh, and that was very much where everyone hung out and swapped games and talked about what they were playing. And there was just a whole scene round about that experience. I was wondering then, how did you like get the job at this? And um, like, you know, what was your kind of position and what were you initially doing? So after I'd made that documentary, Fair Game, I, uh, I started to think really seriously about designing games. And I'd had ideas previously when I'd been working with Jamie. And I put them down on paper and I started to take them to different people. I think I managed to get a meeting with Ubisoft. And I got a meeting with Philips at the time who were making the CDI, if you might remember that wonderful yeah. platform. And the guy at Philips said to me, look, these are great and we'd like these ideas. How would you make them if you actually could? And I said, well, I don't really have any idea. So he said, well, there's this guy, Chris Vanderkyle in Dundee. He's got a game studio. You should go and see him. And I went to see Chris uh, and then we co-founded Fizz together and, and that was it. And, and Chris obviously had a lot. I mean, Dundee's a small place. And Chris knew Dave and Chris knew a lot of people that were working there. So we emerged as a sort of second tier of games developers out of Dundee at that time. And very quickly, you know, we'd signed our first game to Hasbro and we were off and running. Well, where did the concept of um, Head Extreme Destruction Zone come from? Can you give us a bit of background on that? It was just called Heads when we had it, but uh, Hasbro didn't like the four-letter acronym. So they insisted that we, uh, we add some text, Heads Extreme Destruction Zone, to make it to make it more, I guess, trademarkable. And, uh, well, I mean, it was just, I've always kind of been interested in masks and African culture and, and just this whole idea. So it just, and this is before Pokemon even. So I think we were just looking for something that was kind of anarchic, but would allow people to have a really good multiplayer experience and then have lots and lots of different characterization for it. So heads seemed like an appropriate way to do it. And for anyone that doesn't know, the idea is that these aliens, they all look the same. They can travel through space and time and they like to go and decapitate uh, interesting characters from throughout space, time and history. And then they put those different decapitated heads on site on top of their own and they assume the personality and characteristics of that individual. And that was the basic plot of heads. Where did that idea come from? I don't know. Where does any good idea come from? Probably some, com <laughs> probably some combination of uh, illicit behaviour. <laughs> well, it was the 90s, wasn't it? It was exactly the 90s. And it feels like it's from the 90s. It really does. Yeah. And, you know, I still really love the idea. I mean, it was, it was hard for us when we, uh, when we had ambitions to, to go out there and, you know, make a, a, a 3D uh, arena fighter without any real experience in having built a game of that scale before. Uh, it was a couple of years of real graft. And I think that the, the, 
you know, the, the truth is that Hez didn't really work out to be the game that we'd all hoped, but it was an amazing learning experience for everybody involved. And, you know, certainly a lot of the people then are still working in the industry today. Now, the technology that was used on that game, I mean, what were you kind of making that 3D, you know, the graphics on and rendering it? Did you have like expensive kit to do that on or was it? Yeah, no, we had silicon graphics machines, the big purple oh, silicon wow. graphics. And uh, and actually our, uh, our, our lead, uh, our CTO at the time had said, uh, let's build them with voxels. Right. So the plan was that we would get extra detail by producing these high quality 3D heads and then outputting them as voxels in the game. So when you look at them in the game, you know, from a certain distance, they look absolutely fantastic. However, the problem with voxels, as it was then, when you get up close, it just looks like a, you know, a blur of breakfast cereal. That was maybe one of the problems graphically. It didn't live up to the expectations, but overall, as I say, it was just an amazing experience. And it had a really good, um, very interesting marketing campaign as well. I mean, were you involved in that much? Uh, I wasn't involved in the marketing because it was mainly Hasbro that did that. But I do remember they had a launch party, which was just legendary at the time. And they flew a number of kind of waspish Americans over to the UK. Uh, and they let this woman in charge of the party. And I remember they had, you know, it started off quite nice. There's like some Highland dancing. And, and then they brought on an extreme circus, you know. And at one point I looked up and this dwarf guy was dragging a woman in a wheelchair by his penis across the dining room <laughs> oh, right? and I thought okay this has gone slightly differently from how I would expect it uh, and then next to them, we were outside at this fireworks display and the fireworks come straight at people and they were passing out and it was screaming and I thought yeah games industry is fun right this is this is kind of how it's meant to be <laughs> but, uh, but I don't think any of them ever returned to Scotland again after that they probably learned a lesson the 90s <laughs> love it yeah. um it was it was interesting. You guys did uh, Earthworm Jim 3D as well, and at that time there was a lot of transition of titles going from 2D to 3D. What was that process like? Yeah, we uh, we met up with Shiny Entertainment, Dave Perry, the other Dave Perry, out in uh, uh, California, and managed to win the contract to make Earthworm 3D. And again, we had quite a lot of things going on in the studio at that point. We actually, I think, we're still finishing off heads. So it was a lot to, to take on at that stage. And really just, I mean, I think the first year was just spent trying to get Jim to animate in 3D and, you know, and work in a 3D environment in a correct way. So it was challenging just working within the parameters of Earthworm Jim himself. But then we just kind of went off on one and I think we pretty much ignored all the advice and all the direction that we'd had from Shiny Entertainment, just made something of our own. And uh, and then about the last six months with Zen furiously trying to get us to retrofit things and that we'd missed out. Uh, so again, another kind of 90s experience, uh, albeit built in the, the 2000s. But it was, at that point, Mario 64 had hit the market as well. So we had this benchmark of like, this is what 3D games should look like. This is what people's expectations is going to be. And it was a, that's a high benchmark to, to live up to. So yeah, that, I think that was one of the more challenging things that we've ever done just because it was right on that cusp of transition from, from 2D to 3D, as you say. So many uh, companies uh, fell by the wayside during that kind of transition period. I well, I think we brought down Interplay uh, with that game because it's so <laughs> much in money that uh, there wasn't much left for anything else. So yeah, I'm possibly also responsible for bringing down Interplay Entertainment. <laughs> nice. What was it like with that... Um, other titles coming out as well when you saw stuff like, uh, you know, Banjo and uh, some of the stuff that was coming out of Rare. Well, that's, I mean, Rare were all absolute heroes of mine. And I think all of those games, and we all, we all know that, uh, you know, the Bond game and, and 
banjo, etc., was were just fantastic games at the time. And I had the pleasure of kind of getting to know David Doak, uh, who was one of the original team members down there. And we got down to got down to them and, and visited the studio and talked a little bit about how they had built out banjo. And I, I have absolute respect for them. I mean, they did have a little bit of help from Nintendo at the time, but uh, honestly, these guys are, are kind of geniuses in their own lifetime. And certainly the kind of gaming that I'd always aspired to make. We did mention earlier about that documentary that you made with Dominic Diamond, and you know, that was the first time you met him. But how did that kind of lead to you appearing on Games Master then? What was the story there? After I'd met Dominic and we did the documentary, we spent quite a lot of time in the car, driving around the country, talking about things, visiting these various locations. And, and I don't know, maybe he didn't really have any Scottish friends. Do you know what I mean? And he just thought, well, this would be cool. I can have a Scottish friend as well. Uh, so he liked me. And about, uh, about six months after I'd done that documentary with him, he phoned me up and said, look, do you want to come down and, and uh, spend some time in Games Master and maybe do some reviews? And again, typically I said yes, because I'm a, a yes person. But I've got to ask your perspective on it then, because you know, we've had Dominic on a couple of times. We've had Dave Perry on, um, Bandana Dave Perry, the game's animal. The other Dave Perry. You were there, obviously, during the, uh, the notorious Dave Perry Mario 64 incident. I was very much what there, happened yeah. From, what happened from your perspective then? What, what memories have you got of that? Well, I'm a sort of the patsy in all of this because I didn't really know. I mean, I knew that there was some animosity between Dave and uh, the production team. And, you know, Dave is an interesting character. He's charming, very charming on one hand, but he's also a bit of a tosser when he wants to be. So he, uh, he had probably rubbed some people up and I, you know, and I guess they decided that they would have a bit of fun with Dave over the Christmas quiz. But I was pretty much unaware of that as I was most times I was on film and they didn't really tell me much. They just kind of wheeled me out because I'm pretty. And uh, I got me to do, you know, whatever they said. I didn't expect to be in the final of that quiz at all. Everybody else on the stage, whether it was Rick or Dave, really knows games. And I think their knowledge of games was far superior to mine. And if you go back through it, there's a couple of firm gym questions. And, I, you know, I was like, this is, this is great, right? At least I'm getting something I can answer. And yes, I had played Mario 64, but not extensively, you know, not kind of crazy times before that. And certainly I don't think I'm even a particularly good video games player i'm not a, i'm not an, a games animal like david maybe is but uh when it came to it you know i think i won fair and square it's just it's just the rub of the dice and for my money dave should not have jumped to the star and that was his mistake mate <laughs> was it awkward when the cameras stopped rolling it was really awkward right and <laughs> there's a little bit after that where dave storms out the studio and the cameras had stopped and it wasn't, yeah, at that point, no one felt good about it. And it did feel like a bit like a prank gone wrong. Uh, I can't believe that people are still talking about it 30 years later. I mean, it's just madness, isn't it? And I mean, It's the most notorious Games Master moment, I think, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's just one of those sort of 90s moments that resonates in people's minds. And you know what it's like, if you were there, you were there. And even though Games Master, when you look back, I mean, a lot of it is pretty terrible. There is something really fond about it in my mind and... Uh, uh, it still makes me chuckle to watch, you know, all these days and read the, read the comments from people. I love it. It's funny. Did you watch the, uh, the new version of it as well? And what, what did you think of that? Uh, I did watch the new version. I don't really know what they're doing, trying to bring it back. It doesn't seem like something that can exist in this time period. And I thought it was weirdly, you know, like a lot of the elements were the same, but it just didn't really have that uh, anarchy from the first one. So good as everybody is in respect to, you know, everyone that was involved in it, but it wasn't for me. 
Well, uh, talking of anarchy, um, Dom and Kirk's Night of Plenty was a, a pretty interesting show. W- what was it kind of like working on that? And um, uh, <laughs> where, where did that idea come from? Well, again, I mean, you know, this all spills out of Games Master, really. Uh, Dominic was looking, and Dominic was, you know, as a hardworking individual, so he was already looking at other things to do. And he came to me and said, look, there's an opportunity to work with Paramount Comedy. They have a slot, which is a late night slot, on uh, Tuesday, I think it was Wednesday evenings. And do you want to come down to London on Wednesdays and do like three hours live? And it's fine, we can go to the pub as well. And that's basically how that works. So I would turn up on the flight. Uh, you know, I'd finished my sort of day job working on the games. I'd fly down to London. I'd go to the pub with Dominic. We'd both appear on the show pissed. He would take the mickey out of me and then we'd go to the pub afterwards and then they'd catch the first flight back to Scotland in the morning. You know, speaking of, uh, you mentioned the, the Dave Perry awkward moment. I imagine uh, David Williams' appearance on that was even more awkward. David, I met David Williams at a wedding, right? And, mm. you know, I, I had never met him previously, but he was sitting opposite me at this wedding that I went to one about 10 years afterwards. And I said, oh, hi, David, I'm Kurt. And he went, I know who you are. He's still holding a grudge about something that I wasn't <laughs> even involved in all these years ago. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I don't know. You know, people have their opinion about David Williams. And I know Dominic certainly has one about him. I was wondering um, how how this and how you got kind of involved with Rockstar then. So, well, I mean, we got involved with Rockstar when we uh, when we pitched State of Emergency. I had met Sam uh, briefly when he had been up visiting DNA working on GTA, and and he'd said, you know, please come to us if you've got an idea, come to us. And we'd gone out to E3 that year, and we had a single uh, sided printed sheet for State of Emergency. It's very simple, it just said, state of emergency, the citizens are revolting, right? And on the back was a description of the game as it turned out to be. Uh, we went for a meeting before the show started with Sam and Dan, and uh, they they said, right, sign it, we'll sign it right here and there. Well, you mentioned Eminem and GTA movie recently in the news. I mean, what's kind of the story there? So that's a slightly different part of my career. So we worked on state of emergency for Rockstar, and I got fairly close with Sam and the team rockstar in new york uh and and after i so ultimately i left viz uh to pursue some other things i went ended up getting a job as an agent in london i was working for this really quite famous uh, american agency icm in charge of film and game licenses and vice versa i knew that there was only really one game worth its salt in terms of license in the world so i knew one day sam was up in edinburgh uh he was out uh, with the Rockstar team and I went down and, and waited at his hotel and reception and when he came back a bit piddled we went up to the room and we stayed up most of the night talking about what a GTA film could look like and he said fine why don't you just represent it and he signed over the rights to me for Grand Theft Auto the movie to which I then spent the next year and a half turning down offers that Sam didn't like from increasingly important film companies uh, to the point they eventually said look enough's enough and that's how the M&M thing came Uh, I got a call one night from Scott Rudin, who's a legendary film producer in America. And he said to me, yeah, we have, uh, we've got an offer for you. It's a Paramount picture. It's a 5 million advance, uh, Eminem to star in a Tony Scott film, Grand Theft Auto, the movie. So I went back to Sam and said, uh, you know, this is, this is the pitch from the, from the studio. What do you think? And he said, uh, Tony Scott, what about Ridley? Ridley, not Ridley too good for us. And he was joking, but at the same time, I knew right then and there that was that was kind of it. Rockstar probably weren't ever going to make a Grand Theft Auto movie, and they were right not to, because if you look at how the franchise evolved from that point on, 
it just feels like it would have trapped GTA in one, you know, celluloid moment, whereas it's much bigger as a game and everyone loves it much more as that kind of product. What do you think it would have been like if Eminem starred in it? I mean, obviously he's known for being a rapper. Do you think he'd have done some of that? Would it, be, would it have been a bit like 8 Mile kind of thing? What do you reckon? Do you think he would have rapped? <laughs> I think it would have been possible not to let out a couple of bars, right? So, yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe that film could have been good. And I don't think Tony Scott's a half. I mean, you know, God rest his soul, he's not here. But, uh, you know, he made some good films at, at the moment. And Eminem was just coming off the back of 8 Mile. So he was riding high in terms of his performance career. It might have been okay. But it wouldn't have been our GTA. It would have been their GTA. And I think that's really what it is. And to be fair, GTA is bigger than any movie these days, isn't it? It's not like it needed Absolutely. It. So, yeah, we don't need well, um, you mentioned state of emergency there, and like it, it was a great concept for a game, you know, kind of anti-establishment, uh, anarchistic title. Were there any any ones that like influenced you, or any movies, or you know, kind of cultural things? I always say, and it's the truth, that the thing that really inspired uh, state of emergency was the Scottish poll, talk, poll tax riots back in the day when Thatcher imposed the poll tax on Scotland, and we all went out in the streets and demonstrated and marched and threw things around, and. We had this idea that we wanted to do something about civil unrest and, and about having hundreds of characters on screen. I mean, that was really the goal, was to get hundreds of different characters all running around on a melee. So we knew what Grand Theft Auto was going to do. And may I say, I don't think, you know, we weren't capable of building a game like that uh, at that stage either as Viz. So we chose something that was a bit more anarchic, which was State of Emergency, the massively multiplayer beat-em-up, uh, and off we went. Yeah, there was that famous um, uh, poll tax riot in London as well, where they smashed the whole of the kind of West End up in it. That's the one. It, That's the yeah. one. That, that, I mean, the footage from that is still unbelievable. I mean, when Londoners riot, they really know how to do it, don't they? I, I, I remember seeing footage of all these supercars destroyed, and then there was this one, like, hippie van, and they just <laughs> left it, like, perfectly intact. Yeah. One of us. Right, fair enough. No, I mean, it's it, it, it does come from that, and if you might remember the... State of Emergency also ended up in a really insane PR loop where when the game was announced, it was not long after the Seattle riots. So they started to look at us as being, you know, a developer that was that was using the Seattle riots as inspiration. Yeah. The um, fact that we'd been in development for two years prior to that. So those were the WTO ones. And I was wondering, because this was actually brought up in, in uh, America, in uh, I think it was in the Congress, but... Um, what, do you think that was an excuse uh, for, for them to condemn it? Congress was guns blazing for Rockstar at that point, I think, and, uh, and Grand Theft Auto. You know, they had a real vendetta against anything that would be seen as this, you know, adult-orientated game. So state emergencies just fell under the banner and it just provided them a perfect excuse to, to have a go at us as well as, as, well as the Rockstar guys. Uh, but certainly that was my baptism of fire for controversy in video games and at that point you know going through that cycle i really understood what push buttons what to say what not to say uh i'm not sure i've ever learned what not to say but implied and uh yeah so so the, there was a whole other learning experience that happened from that 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 went on to influence the way that I made games thereafter and famously, like GTA was, uh, you know, massively promoted by uh, I think it was Max Clifford at the at the beginning uh, yeah. to to kind of whip up that controversy as well. Well, I mean, so- Max Clifford, whatever you say about Max Clifford, and obviously he is a CD individual, but uh, he was good at his job. 
and he really, really upset the establishment with Grand Theft Auto and I think paved the way. But this was the whole notion, like, you know, we were of that generation and that 90s generation that were saying, why can't we make games that we want to play? Why can't we make more adult style games? And then obviously once the cat was out of the bag, it just accelerated from that point on. But I mean, we were also, I mean, Viz were closely involved with uh, uh, another company called Stainless Games who made Carmageddon on the Isle of Wight. And, uh, you know, they were also trawling that kind of path with their with their game at the same time. And there was a few other people I knew, the Postal guys. So there was a kind of gang of us that were, you know, all pushing the boundaries of what was acceptable in gaming. Do you, do you think uh, Rockstar were kind of testing the waters of controversy a bit with a state of emergency for, for, for later titles that were going to come out? I don't know if they were testing the, the waters necessarily, but they, they clearly understood that there was an audience and that they had a, a specific audience. So state of emergency, you know, uh, was, was a natural extension of the types of things they were doing. Uh, Sam had always been obsessed with the Warriors, the movie. And, and obviously went on to then make the game The Warriors uh, and as, as I think as a replacement in some ways for what failed to what state of emergency failed to be. So Sam had a notion about these types of games and the type of settings that he wanted. State of emergency fitted into that successfully and that's why it got commissioned by Rockstar, I think, in the first place. And how did multiplayer change the, the dynamic of that game, do you think? Well, State of Emergency mm. never had a proper multiplayer mode uh, that I was satisfied with. And I think this is the great mistake of State of Emergency because it was ideally for uh, a multiplayer beat em up you know, and shoot em up. That's what it was designed for. And, you know, sadly, the relationship with Rockstar ended at the end of the production of State of Emergency. I moved on from Viz. You know, they went on to make the second title, uh, which, as you know, didn't quite work out either. And, and that was it. State of Emergency fell off the Rockstar roster. And it's a shame because it was, uh, you know, I think it, it could have been a, a much better longer term franchise had we kept going with it. What happened from your perspective there then? Because I know I remember reading a lot about State of Emergency 2 and what kind of happened from your perspective then with, with all that? Uh, I think Rockstar were disappointed ultimately with the game. Uh, it, it performed fine. It was number one in America for, you know, a number of weeks, etc. But it wasn't maybe as good as it could be. We had an interesting deal structure with Rockstar as well in that uh, we paid for the development of the game as Viz. So we actually got quite a high royalty back from the sales of the game as well, which helped us make a lot of money. And I think Sam wasn't particularly happy with that deal. So when it came time to renew, ways were parted because we couldn't agree on a, a new deal structure. Do, do you think um, it's, a, it's a title that might be revisited by Rockstar at one point? No, I don't think it is because I think that Rockstar make games that are originated by them and they're interested in original titles from them. State of Emergency is the last third-party title that Rockstar ever made, so there's another <laughs> there's another accolade I can add to things, you know. <laughs> never stop any other developers from being uh, uh, commissioned by Rockstar Games. Well, obviously, you know, you're no stranger to uh, controversial games. Where did the concept of... JFK Reloaded come from? I think I've got a pretty good handle on when I started thinking about JFK as well. Uh, and it was during the making of State of Emergency. State of Emergency took years, three years over to make. Uh, it was, you know, all my developments mainly have had problems one way or the other. It says something about my skills as a designer. But at the time, 
we spend so long working on state of emergency and working on these huge maps and trying to build everything out that I started to think about wouldn't it be more interesting or interesting to look at a moment in time rather than these kind of more expansive games? And I started to think about well, what moment in time would that be? Uh, and, you know, variously I worked through like the moon landing, maybe you could land on the moon and you could sort of bounce around for a while. And none of these seemed to have the, the right qualities that I wanted to get seen. So I stumbled across the idea of doing JFK and I thought about the ballistics and I looked at the, the information that was there available from the day. And I realized, well, this actually, you know, from a documentary perspective, there's, there's so much data about what happened, the wind speed, the ballistics drop off, et cetera, that there's something in this. And I started to think, right, okay, JFK is the perfect moment to go back and explore. And also at the same time, I was slightly dismissive of conspiracy theories and, you know, some of the, the hype round about, say, like the JFK movie. Uh, and I thought there's another way that we can do this and we can take our games technology and apply it to a subject like JFK. Well, interestingly as well, that was developed under the uh, Carmageddon engine. So um, how did that kind of help develop the title? How did you know that? I've never said that publicly. <laughs> I, saw, I saw it online. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I'd mentioned, I did have a good relationship with uh, with some of the developers that had worked on that. Uh, so I had a bunch of really brilliant physics programmers that understood what I was trying to achieve and were happy to come along on that ride. Well, I do remember, you know, the the press and the the statements around the game back in the day. I remember a spokesman for Ted Kennedy said uh, the game was despicable and there were senators who were sickened by the game as well. I mean, uh, do you remember the big uproar around that title then and what, what did you kind of think of it? When we were launching uh, JFK Reloaded, I phoned up Sam and said, look, I think there might be some controversy about this. So do you have any good recommendations of a, a PR manager that I could work with that could help me manage it? And he put me in touch with this, this guy who shall remain nameless again, but he, he was a, a sort of PR troubleshooter and he would call me from the deck on his ranch out in Texas. And he said to me, he said, Kirk, this is a controversial title. He said, not everyone's going to like this title. He said, but here's how it's going to go down. I'm going to get you an interview with Newsweek with Engai Crow, who's the lead technology writer. And if Engai likes it, then he'll write a story. And if he writes a story, you'll be on the Today Show on Wednesday. And Engai liked it. And I ended up on the Today Show on Wednesday being chauffeured around New York, uh, doing all of these different crazy interviews. And, uh, and it just went off from there. So, you know, being involved in that news cycle, again, I understood this is probably not going to last forever but it was fairly intense at the time because people were literally sort of calling for my death, uh, blaming me directly for the death of Kennedy. Uh, and is then, it true that you got death threats from the... Oh, from the very much so. I mean, quite explicit death threats as well. I mean, I didn't know you could do these things to people, but... Uh, and, and from all corners, I mean, uh, I had a, a reverend in the deep south in America call me a purveyor of electronic wickedness, which was a T-shirt that I should always have had made. Interestingly, you had a competition in it as well, which was, uh, you know... Yeah, you, that you could, wasn't such a great idea in retrospect. <laughs> yeah, you can win money uh, for whoever recreates the uh Oh, it was more scammy. Accurately. It was actually more scammy than that, if you remember, because it was you can win up to $100,000, but the up to was an important part. And what I did was I basically set aside money for development. So I was like, well, once we reach this target and everyone gets paid, then we'll put all the money, you know, like a 50% of the money that we get from that into the prize pot. But the game never really made any money. I think we, uh, I think 
we probably broke even round about and I actually had to still pay out 20,000 euros to some guy who won the competition. So it was a, it was a bad day for me all round because I'd, I'd made this outrageous claim. Uh, I got really harassed about it in the press and then I actually still had to give someone the money. <laughs> well, um, some fans were suggesting interesting t- ideas for, for games as well. And uh, oh, yeah. Diana I'm sure, one I'm was... sure I've heard some of them before. Yeah, uh, Diana one was one which popped up. Were, were, there, were there ideas that you thought this was kind of going to go too far and, and that you wouldn't go down those roads? It's pretty interesting that you mentioned Diana because I got that a lot at the time. And, and sometimes it was people being helpful with a suggestion, like, hey, what about a Diana game? And sometimes it was them mocking you, going like, well, why not just make a Diana game if that's the kind of person mm. that you are? Here we are 20 years later. I still sort of think that Diana thing would make a good game, if I'm perfectly honest. And I've done, you know, a fair amount of research on it, and I think there's enough information, you know, for that missing, what is it, 13 seconds inside the tunnel to go and explore that and say, well, what would have happened if the, you know, uh, paparazzi outriders had run into the car? What would happen if this guy had been drunk beyond his limits? So playing with parameters within the context of what we know uh, to see how the the actual event played out. From a sort of creative perspective and a documentarian perspective, I think it's completely valid. Would it ruffle feathers still? Yes, remarkably, people can't let it go. So we can do what we want with the crown, but we're not allowed to do anything in video game format. So it's interesting that you mentioned that Diana idea because I think it's actually pretty valid. Yeah, uh, I went to um, Dismoland. I, w- oh, I right, went to okay. Dismoland, and that was at the centerpiece of uh, Banksy's uh, Princess Castle as well. Well, so he's exchanged it to a bit of control. Yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting. But um, I was I was wondering, do you think like any of these titles that you did back then would get more of a reaction? Uh, nowadays I'm really not sure I mean you know JFK aside because JFK was made by me and a bunch of guys so we can do what we want we published online we don't need a publisher we don't need anybody to tell us what to do and I think that's still one of the positive things about you know the PC scene and this uh, indie scene that they can still go and find innovation but I don't think the subject matters would be as popular nowadays as they were back then Uh, so yeah maybe it was just of its moment, and now we have to look at something different. Well, I know you're still very much involved in the industry, and um, you've got some exciting projects that you're working on these days. We kind of hinted at the beginning that you know you've you kind of you know sticking it to the the big tech companies in America, which uh, you know we're big fans of as well. So, what are you up to these days? Then, anything you can talk about that you've got coming up? I just want to point out that I've I've sucked plenty of corporate tea over the years, so I'm not I'm not a complete uh, punk renegade in every form. <laughs> You know, I've taken Audi's money. I've taken money from all sorts. We think you're cool, Kurt. Don't worry. <laughs> it's not. It's not a unique thing. But I guess you know, it's interesting because there's a parallel with what I did with Heads and what I went on to do with uh, my company Vimi. So we got involved in uh, PlayStation Home, the much derived PlayStation Home, uh, and built a lot of content for that over the years. And I got really into this whole sort of avatar world and virtual world sort of setup and. You know, we sold a lot of, uh, we made a lot of custom clothing and a lot of sort of designs for, for people's avatars. And, and this idea of sort of masking yourself came back to the fore. But from that Vimi project, I actually started to get involved in augmented reality and I formed another couple, uh, another company with uh, some colleagues, uh, what is it, 11 years ago now called Zapper. 
and Zapper are, uh, we have our own technology stack, our own tools, our own vision algorithm. We make everything for augmented reality. And just this year, we're launching a mixed reality headset of our own. It's a, derived from Google Cardboard, so it's still one that you put your phone in, but it comes with controllers like Quest and so on. And it's 80 bucks, and we like to think that it's better than Meta, is the slogan that we're using right now. Uh, and just anything that sort of disrupts the industry in, in one form or another is always still interesting to me. Do you think there's more areas to kind of explore and, uh, you know, expand gaming experiences in VR and AR? I've enjoyed di- designing in mixed reality so much. You know, it was a complete new canvas. And to have other people in different locations, but in your room, sort of looking at game components and moving them around has been an amazing experience. So just from a sort of... Uh, design perspective it's been a a completely new challenge to build in it and i think there are loads of things that we can do in mixed reality that we haven't seen in uh in normal gaming before i mean there's still lots of tech it's it's incredible guys you know the same things that was playing on the amiga are still valid in terms of how gameplay works the you know the core of games is pretty is pretty set so we're looking at the same sort of techniques but it's how it can be implied and I think that when you're in your environment, what I'm really interested in is like, how can we actually involve the other things around about you in your room and then bring that into the gaming as well? So there's definitely possibilities for, for mixed reality and these types of things that didn't exist before in the other platforms. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the Amiga there. We were, um, do you remember those old virtuality headsets? Yeah. Yeah. From the early 90s. Yeah. yeah, we were. There's there's a couple of those at the Retro Computer Museum in Leicester. And uh, we had a bit of a play with them. And they've actually got Amigas inside them that were powered by Amigas. Amazing. 3,000 yeah, uh, strapped to your back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, quite an experience. It's one of those things, isn't it? I mean, we were promised virtual reality a lot for a number of years. Yeah. And I think when I first put on the Quest 2, I really did think, okay, this is, uh, this is it, right? You know, they've reached a consumer-ready headset. But I suffer from the same thing that I think other people do, which is that after a while, I'm just a bit like, I don't know if I want to be in this thing anymore. It's too discombobulating it. It makes you feel a little bit weird. Weird. So even though I'm playing Half Life, Alex, I'm, I'm like, I don't want to spend that much time in it. So it's not got that same addiction power that that the early video games did, where you just didn't want to leave. Yeah, because I mean, I've got a PSVR and I've got a Quest Two as well, and like, they both gather dust a lot of the time. It's just I, I don't know why it is though. I always think, I mean, I think the Quest is an easier device to use and something like the PSVR where you've got bloody cables halfway yeah, across the room yeah, and sure. you know it, but it, I don't know if it's just like if my wife's in the room I feel a bit antisocial putting it on I always <laughs> I think you know the, yeah uh, yeah something about putting a headset on that always makes me feel like my mum's gonna walk in and we having a wife you know it's got that <laughs> it's just got that I shouldn't really be in here doing this feeling to it so yeah that, and that's why I think that mixed reality for me appeals a lot more because you've got you know, you've got a sense that you're still in the real space, but hey, there's all this other graphic action happening. Yeah, well, I think that's a great point to end on there, Kirk. That was a, <laughs> a fascinating look back at your, uh, your career. I wish you luck with that as well. When's that um, the headset going to be out then? Is it going to be headset this year? Headset launches in, uh, on the 2nd of April. Anywhere that we can find out information on that? Uh, you can just search for Zapbox on the internet and you will find out all about it. Brilliant. Now, well, listen, mate, thank you so much for sharing some of your memories with us and uh, best of luck with it. Thank you for leading me down memory lane, guys. Much appreciated. It's, it's nice to talk to you.